Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. Wow, can you believe it? It's the holiday season. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving weekend. Now we move fully into uh, the Hanukkah and Christmas uh, season. Kwanzaa's coming up down the road. I feel like we should, I know you're all used to our theme music, but I feel like this month maybe we should open the show with like some Mel Torme or Gene Autry singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Anyhow, happy, happy holidays to all of you out there. And again, I hope that this past weekend was restful, peaceful, and uh, that you had a wonderful, healthy Thanksgiving holiday. Um, the news doesn't stop, though. And in fact, this is a big, big week. Congress is back in session. They face a potential government shutdown at the end of the week if they can't resolve budgetary issues they're facing. Um, on Wednesday, the Supreme Court takes up the Mississippi abortion case, the 15-week ban on abortion. And uh, that though everybody is waiting to see what the court may do about that. Um, And of course, we're continuing to cover the fallout from redistricting in Georgia, as well as the aftermath of the um, guilty verdicts in the case of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. So a lot to talk about as the holidays pick up here. To do that today, we have my Monday partner on the show, Jim Galloway. You know Jim. He for many years, was the political voice of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, columnist and reporter on politics, and uh, is sort of semi-retired. Jim, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And if I could, I'd like to cast my vote for Mel Torme. I think he's very, very under, I, under underestimated. <laughs> oh, all right. Thank you very much for that. We'll see what we can do. Um, we also have Raisa Habersham. Uh, with us today. She's an investigative reporter for the Savannah Morning News, and um, we're especially glad to have you here today, Raisa, when we start talking a little bit about what's happening in the aftermath of the trial down there and what are, what's going to happen next down in Brunswick and Glynn County. But in the meantime, thank you for being here, Raisa. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Audrey Haynes is back with us, professor of political science at the University of Georgia, and also, of course, the director of the Applied Politics program there, where she essentially mentors young people who want to have careers in politics. A very successful program. Happy holidays, Audrey. Thank you very much. And may I share one thing I'm grateful for, um, Bill? Yeah. That is this show and its audience, especially its Facebook Live audience, because I tell you what, I go back and I read their discussions, and very often I learn something new that I didn't know. What a what a great group of people interacting. I, I'm glad you said that. The Facebook, I mean, we have a lot of listeners who we're obviously grateful for, but you're right, that Facebook Live group, they're, they're really a fascinating group, and we're so happy that they continue to want to pay so much attention to the show and to comment on it every single day. So thanks for saying that. We also are welcoming back Heather Farley, who is the chairman of the Department of Criminal Justice, Public Policy, and Management at the College of Coastal Georgia down there in Brunswick. Heather, it's great to have you back with us. Hope you had a good holiday. I did, and thank you so much for having me back today. Absolutely. All right, let's talk briefly. Um, 
unfortunately, there's not a lot we can say at this point about the Omicron uh, variant of the virus, but we do know that public health officials are starting to study it. They're very concerned about it, Jim. They think it may, in fact, it's possible that this particular composition of virus could bypass um, uh, the uh, uh, protections that the vaccines have uh, given to all of us. And, and Jim, I think it's worth putting it in the context of where we stand in Georgia right now. So with that in mind, I was looking up figures for vaccine rates in Georgia, Jim. Um, we still have only about half the people, 49 plus percent of Georgians of all ages who have been vaccinated. Uh, and 59 percent have had one dose. The number is much higher for people 65 and older, where um, 81 percent are fully vaccinated. Um, but the other issue here, Jim, is that there's a slight uptick in, um, in, in cases. There's an 8 percent increase over the last uh, 14 days. And maybe more disturbing, Jim, is tests have gone way down in Georgia. They're down 25 percent over a two-week period. So, Jim, the question is, if this variant is as potentially uh, troubling as some think, is Georgia really ready for it? Oh, and and I'm, the, the answer is no. Uh, look, it's 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 disappointing, but I think those those are the facts on the ground. And and the, if you take a look at these vaccine vaccine rates, you know they're 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 in 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 rural Georgia, they're 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 astoundingly low. Uh, and you know mm -hmm. uh, the uh, rural healthcare system, uh, you're you're just you're just looking at a a, a a group of hospitals that are already under fire with including their medical uh, personnel that aren't going that they may not get any respite uh, during this winter. Uh, yeah, yes, we've yeah. we've uh, Biden slapped a ban on on travel from uh, from I think maybe six uh, South African countries on uh, uh, just after Thanksgiving. That that's really just buying time. Everybody assumes that the that the the the, the Omicron uh, variant is 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 already here. We just haven't picked it up. You ha you have you you talked about a, a a decline in testing. That may be a seasonal thing. It may be just the fact that nobody's going to work. Nobody is no uh, you know everybody had uh, uh, kind of took the uh, a few weeks off for the for the holidays. Uh, now the, the question comes is what happened during those holidays. Uh, those family gatherings did it did it did it spread and that'll take us uh, maybe a, a two or three weeks to find out yeah that's that's right um so audrey just to to uh amplify what jim said elbert county white county lumpkin county turner county bartow county all of those counties and others have increases in the number of cases over the last uh, 14 days as much as 356% higher. Now, those are low population counties, so one case counts for a lot. Nevertheless, as Jim points out, it's in places uh, like in rural Georgia, particularly, Audrey, where protections are wanting. Yes, and, you know, it's a real concern because it feels like, according to most of the information, that we're moving potentially into another wave, and, you know, we... Uh, I was listening to Dr. Fauci this, this weekend talking about what's going on and how, um, you know, there's still things we don't know. I mean, what is the uh, efficiency of the boosters? Uh, I mean, not the boosters. I just had my booster, but the vaccinations were going into uh, a period where 
You have a lot of unvaccinated people. You have people whose vaccinations are now waning. You're moving into a season where people are indoors. So the expectation is that we'll see a rise in cases and and what the nature of it will be and will there be a new variation. Um, But what we all know is this has moved from pandemic to endemic and it's continuing to do so. We've lost the opportunity to to deal with it effectively initially and it's going to continue uh, to be with us. So the end result is Everyone who's involved in every political level needs to get together and, and, and think about their messaging. You know, if we really are going to move on and open up the economy and, and make sure that our hospitals are overwhelmed, we really need to get on the same page and work with the data and, and do so in a more effective manner. At this point, if you are saying things about vaccinations that are not true and pushing a message um, that, you know, is is bordering on conspiracy theory, you are hurting not only, um, you know, our state, but the country as a whole. Raisa? Um, Sure. I just wanted to add to that, that I think what concerns me is going into the top of next year where we had discussions. I mean, almost, it would be almost two years ago when we had conversations about coronavirus and we were thinking, oh, that's not going to happen here in the States. And we were very dismissive of it. And it, it feels as if we're entering another phase of that. And just the anti-vaccination language is only going to further compound it. Um, I think for me also, um, my husband, he's a, a high, uh, excuse me, a middle school math teacher. And I get concerned about whether or not parents are even vaccinating their children. Um, it w- was recently when children could get effectively vaccinated. Um, so you have all these um, challenges that we aren't facing head on. And I wonder, will we be back at square one again, March 2022? So thank you for that. Heather, just to close out this portion of our conversation, uh, the other thing that this new uh, variant uh, poses is this question about whether this is our future, not just in in the immediate future, but how many variants, how long will they continue? Is this our new life? Uh, that the coronavirus is such a powerful, powerful uh, uh, bacterial weapon uh, that it will continue being a problem for us for who knows how many years. Heather, are you there? Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I think to Raisha's point, it's um, it's beginning to feel like a really unfortunate Groundhog Day, right? I mean, we know we know the results we saw what delta variant could do and we know that at a state level at a uh, national level and internationally we know what we need to do we know that we need higher vaccination rates in our state we know that across the country we're seeing uh conservative lawmakers who are pushing against the uh the the federal mandate for uh employers and and then internationally we know that lower income nations are not getting the doses that they need, and they're not getting the tech transfer that they need in order to develop the vaccine. So, uh, you know, until we can address this at each of those levels, we're going to continue, I think, to face this same cycle. And we're going to continue to uh, see a lot of really sad outcomes. Jim, I I want to let you finish it up. I called it bacterial. Of course, it's viral, but go ahead, finish us off. Right. Um, No, not to be too parochial, but I think this is a guarantee that we're going to see health care as a big, big issue in the 2022 uh, elections. And and, uh, 
and you know, obviously, Democrats are going to keep pushing for Medicaid expan- uh, uh, Medicaid expansion. Uh, that's 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 no secret. What I'm wondering is if Governor Brian Kemp is going to face any kind of uh, criticism or attacks from David Perdue. That would be that would be my first signal, really, that 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 his primary problems are actually real. Uh, right now we have it just seems like a a, a guaranteed issue of, for discussion on on the Republican primary side. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly we're going to be watching the political implications of all of this. Um, all right. So the the uh, trial in Brunswick is finally over almost two years of this this very, very dark cloud hanging over all of us in terms of what was going to happen to the men who were finally convicted of murdering Ahmad Arbery. And no one has, I think, been in the spotlight more than the people of Brunswick and Glynn County in all of this. And I want to talk about what the next steps are in terms of that whole coastal area of our state. Raisa, you uh, were down there. You spent, you, this was a big story for all of you down in Savannah and Brunswick, Glynn County. Uh, just give us a sense of where we, you think things are headed down there in the aftermath of the trial. Yes, we have sentencing coming up. Yes, there's a federal hate crimes trial. But let's talk about right now. Um, No, I'm glad you brought that up. I think uh, we saw some change, I think, before the trial, when you think about last election season, and they voted out uh, former uh, DA Jackie Johnson, um, who um, is now uh, facing charges of violation of oath, um, in her role in all of this. Um, so we, they now have a new DA down there, Keith Higgins. Um, I think at this point, for some residents, they are hoping that this obviously goes to trial and that she too is convicted. Um, but beyond that, there are some residents who also want um, George Barnhill in, um, uh, to also receive charges in this as well for his involvement um, in this case as well, because it wasn't just her, him as well, they feel. Um, I think for long term, I think for a lot of residents, I don't think it's just a matter of just putting it behind them. I think, you know, it, they want to ensure that this doesn't happen again, and there are um, instrumental ways in doing that. Um, one nonprofit that kind of formed um, after Ahmaud Arbery's death was A Better Glen, and they've been instrumental in doing um, civic work. Um, they also led campaigns in getting um, Jackie Johnson um, ousted from office. Uh, they've also been instrumental in um, social justice advocacy. So I think that we're probably going to see a bit more social justice activism in Brunswick um, and how to uh, further that in Glynn County as a whole. Um, I wrote a story earlier this year that kind of centered on uh, a Better Glen, um, where they talked about the median income there was like 28000 um, so there's like little upward mobility there and just finding ways in which you can enhance that in the community so that they kind of see themselves just beyond what people view Brunswick as um, in the state of Georgia and honestly, nationally. Heather, we should point out um, that uh, George Barnhill was the second uh, uh, circuit attorney, district attorney to get this case. And he actually wrote a letter uh, to law enforcement saying, uh, look, I, I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing, essentially saying, leave these guys alone. Leave the McMichaels, 
alone, uh, this is not worth pursuing. And it is interesting that we've seen very little activity <clears throat> around what this might mean to him. But Heather, you one of the reasons the first time you came on the show was because you felt that we needed to do a more balanced job in talking about the fact that <laughs> Glynn County and Brunswick are not defined uh, by the McMichaels or Roddy Bryan. And you're, of course, right. Um, where do you think things are now? You're right down there in Brunswick. <clears throat> yeah, thanks. Um, you know, it was interesting, the timing of these verdicts, uh, literally on the heels of Thanksgiving, uh, which gave everybody a chance to sort of convene and talk and uh, and talk through what this means for us. And there was a, a brief moment of relief, obviously. Um, relief just to have the camera crews leave uh, was a big one. Um, however, I think that was pretty short-lived. When, when I've been talking to my neighbors and, and talking to friends and family in this area, what we uh, are seeing is that there's really two sort of things that are looming ahead of us. One are a lot more legal uh, court, court cases coming up, right, um, from sentencing to the federal hate crime charges. Um, so we've got all of that coming up. So I know the eye will, will sort of come back to Brunswick, but there's also, um, uh, as Raisa was pointing out, there's also a lot of work to do on the ground. And, um, you know, Bobby Henderson, who is one of the founders of A Better Glen, posted to his Facebook yesterday, and he said, you know, justice is not a one-time event. And I thought that wrapped it up just perfectly, right? It's, uh, you know, it's great that the this part of the justice system operated appropriately, but everything leading up to it was, um, was not. And so we have so much work to do on uh, sort of the criminal justice reform. Um, a better Glenn is ensuring that uh, we can get better attorneys in our area, including people like Keith Higgins. Um, they are going to be in January having Keith Higgins here for a sort of state of the office address in which he'll be talking about things like bail reform and budget increases to attract new attorneys um, and diversity initiatives. Um, we are going to be seeing a new justice center being put in uh, the Rise Risley Initiative downtown, which is uh, bringing local AC, um, uh, ACLU and NAACP representatives to that area so that people have a point of contact there. Um, and then we're again seeing sort of uh, an equity clergy um, uh, holding equity dinners and a racial healing summit. And so the, that clergy group continues to do a great deal as well to, to move us forward. Audrey? Well, you know, I would simply add that um, terrible things can sometimes lead to positive change. And that one of the key requirements, we see this happening in politics and in life, is that good people get involved and that social capital is invested and institutions are built to hold people accountable. And, you know, throughout our time period now across this country, we're looking at how institutions are very valuable. And when they have any kind of, of limitation, such as not being trusted or not having people who are accountable, you know, leading them, you know, you can produce terrible outcomes. So I would say that hopefully this will allow Glen County and those observing, in fact, you know, the whole world observed this hearing, that they'll see what happens when you don't have people making equitable decisions, fair decisions, um, and um, honorable decisions. Uh, and then 
you know, having to deal with the aftermath. Um, and it's, it's not pleasant, but hopefully we'll see that change. Uh, yeah, Bill, I'd like to hear from Heather on 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 some something that I that I, I that was really struck me on on uh, on Wednesday when the, the verdict came down, and that is the role of, of of firearms in public spaces, because we had the written. I mean, this this came on the heels of the Rittenhouse verdict, in which you had a an AR-15 inserted into a very volatile situation, and it did not make anyone more safe. In fact, it it it, it provoked uh, it, it 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 created a defense. You grab my gun, I think you're going to take it and use it on me, and I'm going to kill you. You had the same argument in 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 Brunswick, and uh, it didn't fly. And 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 so I'm I'm wondering how that that's that's going, Heather. I'm wondering how you think that's going to affect the debate because I think it's a really important important one that we have to have. Yeah. Thanks. I think. Um I think there's a narrative that's going on and, and I'm, I'm hesitant to compare the two cases too closely just because so much of the um, circumstances surrounding those cases were quite different. But I think what it comes down to is uh, the way the narrative was presented. The narrative in the Rittenhouse case really made um, the, the, the defense made their case that there was this angry mob and Rittenhouse was a young man kind of caught up in that melee, right? That was sort of the narrative around that case. Whereas in the Arbery trial, uh, excuse me, in the murder trial for Ahmad Arbery, um, in that trial, the defense was not successful despite their best efforts, uh, despite them saying very clearly that he was responsible for his death. Uh, they were not successful in convincing the jury that he was not a victim. Um, and so I think that's really where the uh, the big difference is here, is in that narrative that they were able to paint in each of these cases. Um, right. Okay. Tell you what, Audrey, weigh in, and then Raisa before we take a break. Let me get to both of you. Audrey? Yeah. I would just add, in the, in the Rittenhouse case, you had another gun involved, and that gun was, um, you know, presented and, and pointed at Rittenhouse. And in, in Arbery... It was Arbery clearly had no no weapon. He was not posing any kind of threat to anyone. So you know uh, a different scenario, and and very clear to the jury, I think uh, that difference, and that's why it resulted as it did. Raisa, why don't you take us to the break with your comments? <laughs> sure, I think um, one thing to consider is what is defined as citizen arrest. Um, and how and when you can make one, it, you would have to have firsthand knowledge um, of a crime being committed on said property, and that did not happen here. Um, I think that there has been much conversation about race in this particular trial. I think we'll see, obviously, that come up at the hate crimes um, trial as well. Um, I think that the jurors seem to be very clear on the judge's instructions, and they very much apply the definitions that were given to them in this case, which is in part why we ended up seeing the verdict that um, we saw in the end. So um, what, just from me, finally, before we go to the break, a couple things. First of all, um, it was Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, who first on this show let us know about a, a better Glenn which is an organization, it's, it's an African-American-based uh, uh, organization, and I, it feels to me like it is such a positive development 
for the county, for the city. If there's, it, it, as um, Audrey said, if there, there are good things that come out of terrible tragedies, and Better Glen seems to be one of them. And it's very exciting. It'll be interesting to watch how they develop down there. Um, so let, let's just uh, leave it there. <clears throat> There's going to be a lot more to talk about because of the hate crimes trial coming up, because of the sentencing. And of course, we'll keep our eye on that. For right now, let's take our first break of the show and come back and talk politics with our panel. Welcome back to the show. I'll reintroduce the panel in just a moment, but um, given that it was a long holiday weekend, I know that so many of you don't ever, ever miss an episode of Political Rewind. But maybe a lot of you weren't listening on Friday when you were off with family and friends. And I would really recommend that if you want to listen to a deeper dive into the outcome of the uh, Arbery uh, case, you might want to listen to our Friday show. Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, Margaret Coker really went into great depth on their sense of what happened down there. It's available on our podcast. It's on our website. And it really is, I think, worthwhile. Uh, Heather Farley who is with College of Coastal Georgia, Audrey Haynes, professor of political science, University of Georgia, Raisa Habersham, Savannah Morning News, and of course, Jim Galloway with us today. Heather, one quick more, one quick uh, comment that you uh, thought was pertinent. You point out that this was a, a majority uh, female uh, uh, jury, and yes, there was only one African-American, but you think maybe the, the gender composition of the jury had an impact. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if the fact that, uh, you know, while, yes, 11 of the jurors were white, nine of them were women. And so, um, you know, you can't help but wonder how that might have influenced the outcome. And again, uh, you know, I think that influenced the way the narrative may have been heard as well. So um, I, I found that interesting. And if I could point out just one more thing as well, um, you know, I know that the runoff election um, in Atlanta, the mayoral runoff is coming up, but we also have a mayoral runoff here in Brunswick uh, coming up tomorrow as well. And so that's going to, um, when we're talking about a better Glen, they have been really instrumental in um, in that mayoral race and in, again, leadership development in our area. So it will be uh, really, really interesting and exciting to see what the outcome of that is and whether or not they are able to get those voters out because they spend so much time um, trying to just get the vote out for uh, for leaders who will be invested in social equity. Yeah, right. So that's one of the important things about about Better Glenn is they've worked on voter registration. They've been very active in, in as Heather points out, trying to get people to understand the only way you're going to change things is to get out and cast your uh, ballot. So I, I'm glad that Heather mentioned that. And, and I guess, Raisa, we'll all want to watch what happens in, uh, in in that mayor's race tomorrow. Yeah? Yes, um, and I'm glad you brought that up, Heather, um, just because I know one of the candidates has been endorsed by members of the Arbery family already um, heading into the runoff. So it is going to be curious how the uh, verdict in and of itself and the results of the trial do play into tomorrow's election. Um, I know that this is something that the trial has kind of been something that's on and off been at the center of the mayoral race. I know there are other issues in um, Brunswick as well beyond the trial, um, but it is curious just to see how this will play out tomorrow. 
All right. Well, thank you for putting that on the radar. So we'll keep track of it. And uh, we're, of course, going to be following the Atlanta mayor's runoff election. And we'll add Brunswick uh, to our list. So thank you for that. Uh, Jim Galloway, let's move on. Um, a story that uh, came up last week that, uh, it, because it was a holiday week, didn't get maybe as much attention as uh, it otherwise would have, has to do with what uh, some people up there in your neck of the woods, uh, in Cobb County particularly, are calling the sneak attack <laughs> in which the legislature, uh, we knew about some of the things they were going to do in drawing new lines. I mean, clearly there was a lot of attention paid to the fact that Lucy McBath's 6th District is no longer safe for her to run in, so she's going to run against Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th. We knew about that one. Um, we also knew, in terms of the congressional map, that Sanford Bishop... Uh, because of the population uh, sparsity now down there, was going to get a district that was drawn with more Republicans. But he's presumably likely to still be okay in that district. But Jim, what wasn't anticipated (laughs) was the changes in Marjorie Taylor Greene's 14th district, which suddenly comes all the way down into Cobb County. By the way, Galloway, are you now a constituent of Marjorie Taylor Greene if this map gets approval? Actually, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm in the kind of the northwest quadrant of Cobb. Okay. And and she was she was wrapped into the southwest quadrant of Austell and and Powder Springs, and if 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 it was unexpected, it wasn't really that much of a surprise. I mean, redistricting, you know, if if you're if you're the party in power, what you're trying to do is pack and crack. You're trying to pack all your all your opposing voters into a into as small a, a number of districts as possible, and those you cannot pack, you you crack, you disperse them uh, into into stronger Republican strongholds that so that uh, uh, their 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 impact is is diluted. Uh, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not happy about this. She likes having a, a, an eighty percent Donald Trump district and uh, and and woe, woe is her she's now got maybe a a a 70 65% district uh what's interesting is that uh i mean she had probably i believe audrey you correct me if i'm wrong she had what I, what i think is probably the widest uh, congressional district in all of georgia and she moves and and she is now has a piece of this thriving uh, African American section. This is this is kind of this, this is this is the portion of Cobb that 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 really was that that drove uh, that this uh, my county into into blue territory, and and so the question now comes to me is, all right, now that you've placed those people in her district, uh, have you neutralized them or have you just made them mad? And well, see, are, all right, I want. The- and are you are, are you going that. to are you, are you going to be driving uh, driving voters uh, more democratic voters to the polls, which in turn would actually hurt Barry Launermilk in the adjacent district, who you're trying to help? Yeah. So, oh, great, a lot to unpack in what you said, Jim. Audrey, let me just set up a little more here. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's comment when she saw the new lines was she called it quote a fool's errand that was led by power obsessed state legislators. Um, but but here's, I think, personally, when I looked at that, here's what I wonder. As Jim points out, she is now representing one of the most diverse parts of Cobb County. In fact, maybe the most diverse part of Cobb County. 
in what world do those constituents get fair representation from Marjorie Taylor Greene? And to me, that's the issue. The issue isn't the politician side. It's the constituent side. It's still a Republican district, I think, uh, overwhelmingly, as Jim pointed out. There's no reason to think she won't win re-election. It's this constituents now who have lost the voice of a member of Congress. They were represented by David Scott, for goodness sake. Yes. And, you know, in the 80s, there were a number of, um, you know, court cases that came up where people were saying, you know, we, we've lost our representation because of majority minority districts and all kinds of history in that area. But what I would tell you is that happens. It's happened in many states. It happens to both Democrats and Republicans in the nasty process that sometimes happens in redistricting. It's really tough. Both parties do it. And this is one of the reasons that independent commissions are sometimes thought to be a much better um, uh, tool in order to produce these these districts, because there are less machinations and um, often the outcome is one where you have better levels of representation. But let me just add that perhaps there is some some value in that, that if um, more establishment Republicans and Democrats from that area can get together during the primary, they can uh, organize themselves and perhaps vote for a candidate that is closer to both of their interests, that won't be uh, quite so far off on, on the, the wings of the party, which, you know, might be in another planet um, when it comes to Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm not sure. Sometimes that happens. Um, I, I will say that I vote in primaries um, sometimes for uh, for opposition parties, so I get the candidate that is closer to me, um, and we might see some of that happen. Heather, yeah, I, I think given some of the anti-Semitic and uh, and very racist things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said in the past, uh, I think doing uh, doing the district lines this way can only fire up those uh, Democrats in Southwest Cobb. Um, and when Democrats are fired up and they show up to the polls, Democrats do well in Georgia. So this, uh, I can see where this would really upset Marjorie Taylor Greene, not only because it may uh, dilute her vote very slightly, as Jim pointed out, but, um, but more so because I think statewide, this could really um, ignite a fire under the Democrats. Um, Ray, you said, I, I want to go back to this question. I understand that Democrats could be uh, uh, motivated as a result of all this, but we also have said, all of us, it's still a Republican district. To what extent do we have a right to be represented by people who will, in fact, take our views into consideration when they represent us in Congress? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I think it goes back to what Heather said. I mean, can you trust that this person will be you, um, represent you adequately, given some of the negative things that have been said? I think we'll probably will see more mobilization from Democrats um, next year, because next year is a big year. It's not just uh, redistricting at play. Um, we'll have a gubernatorial race. Um, and there's still... Uh, chatter about who will be their candidate. Um, so I think that we'll probably see um, more mobilization around voting and and creative ways around that, given that we also altered our voting um, law here in Georgia. Jim? 
Yeah, uh, Bill, you were talking about you know what this means for for citizens in in Southwest Cobb, and 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 to me that speaks to constituent services, and whether whether they'll get a fair shake uh, when they when they when they call uh, their their uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's office and get get help with a social security check or a a a, a problem with with veterans benefits, and. You know, it, it, you know let, let, let's pray that they, that they do get that service. If they don't get that service, what happens then, though, is that those, 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 consist, those voters, they drift to, to where they can get help. And that's where, that's where Raphael, uh, Raphael Warnock comes in. That's where John Ossoff comes in. Because they, they, they become the, the de facto representative for that, for that group if they, can't, if they don't get satisfaction uh, from from their their a member of Congress. All right, um, thank you for that perspective uh, on that. We're going to we already know uh, that there are going to be a number of lawsuits uh, filed because of a lot of the district changes, which we'll talk about not just at congressional level, but in in the state house as well. Mark Elias, who's been a prominent Democratic attorney, represented Hillary Clinton in the presidential campaign a couple of years ago, four years ago, five years ago, whatever. She uh, said, uh, he said that he thinks Georgia is going to be t- number one in the country in terms of challenges uh, to uh, uh, district uh, lines. So we'll watch how that unfolds. But Jim, Natalie Mendenhall just sent me a big breaking news story that I want to share with you first. You mentioned David Perdue, Brian Kemp, whether there's going to be a primary contest there. Uh, The Georgia Chamber of Commerce just announced its endorsement of Brian Kemp, Jim. That's a big deal. It's something that a David Perdue can't afford not to look at. No, absolutely, and and it goes this this goes back to the 2018 uh, race race for for. uh, for uh, governor, uh, and uh, that was pre-pandemic, so I was there. Uh, but you had this. I mean, in August, the Georgia Chamber has this huge, huge uh, gathering in Macon every 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 year, and they they, they direct it toward relationships with with uh, usually with relationships with with uh, state state and federal government. The feature there was was were the two no- nominees for governor that year, uh, Stacey Abrams. And uh, and and Brian Kemp. Typically, Democrats get short shrifted at, at at a gathering at this, but the Georgia Chamber felt kind of the shift in the shift in the winds, and and they gave a very even-handed presentation of both candidates, and that that was a, that greatly offended the 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 Kemp camp, and uh, this which means which means the last. Couple legislative sessions have been pretty hard for the Georgia Chamber, so this is this is this is kind of a, an interesting move on their part. All right, um, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on today's political rewind. Let's see if we can do a few quick fire items before we run out of time today. Uh, Audrey Haynes. Um, there are times when people, you talked about our Facebook Live group a little while ago. Sometimes when we talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, we get pushback. People say, don't give her the attention. That's all she's looking for. I get that. But the reality of it is, Audrey, that like it or not, she and her compatriots in that far right wing of the Republican Party in the U.S. House are having a bigger and bigger impact 
Uh, and it goes on as people like the leadership of the Republicans in the House don't push back on anything they say. Well, Audrey, we now know that Marjorie Taylor Greene is perhaps going to start leading a charge that would stop Kevin McCarthy from becoming Speaker of the House if Republicans do take control again. So, uh, you know, the fact that he has been cautious about criticizing her, she doesn't think he's done enough to protect people like her, Audrey. Yeah, that was an amazing irony when I when I heard about that, that someone who has, you know, walked on eggshells not to upset Trump and not to upset people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, castigate her the way that she probably deserved to be castigated for much of her actions in Congress is now very in a very Trumpian way, she's she has called into question his ability to lead the party and and is doing just that, criticizing him and um, saying that he's not good enough. Um, and, and, and again, full of irony, I, I don't think it will have much of an impact. Honestly, I don't see that her um, group, the Jim Jordans and the Matt Gates are really resonating very well right now. I think a lot of what's going on in Congress is is moving past them. Um, but still, the very fact that she would do it, you know, it does signal something. Um, perhaps she isn't getting as much attention as she uh, has in the past and is trying to get that attention. And she did get a story. But um, again, we, we shall see. We'll see how that whether there's any momentum behind something like that. Raisa, the other thing that Marjorie Taylor Greene got some attention for this past week was that she this won't go anywhere. Nevertheless, she introduced a bill to honor Kyle Rittenhouse with a congressional uh, uh, gold, a congressional gold medal, Raisa, because he was a hero in Kenosha, killing two people, wounding a third. Raisa. Oh, geez. No, I don't think that will um, go over too well. Um, but it does speak to, um, I'm not going to say the tone deafness, but her, very much her persistence and sticking by her views. And um, it kind of, it, it, it puts me back in the mindset of January 6th. Um, for some reason, um, just this idea of upholding a particular stance or particular perspective that is indeed harmful to others and just being ignorant of that and just kind of casting that aside. Um, But I also think this, again, speaks to her looking for attention um, in any means necessary. Heather, okay, check me on this. Is it a mistake for us to spend too much time talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene? I am open to criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I think that um, you can't ignore her either, right? And on the other side of the aisle, we see that when uh, people stand in the way, like Kirsten Cinema, for instance, um, uh, on the Democratic side, we, we know they can have an impact. So I think you do have to keep these things in check and, and continue to watch them and call them out and make them accountable for misinformation and, and so on and so forth. No, I don't, I don't think you're giving it too much lip service. I think it's um, necessary to keep tabs on people who may have the potential to be harmful. So, Jim, real quick, I don't want to go too much more on this, but, you know, in the set, you know, you know, these things have a way of spiraling out of control. So none of us believed when uh, the first abortion bill was introduced in the Georgia legislature 
uh, that it was going to be as extreme a ban as it turned out to be. Everybody said, no, 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 the Speaker of the House, the governor, they don't want to go too far. And we end up, because because momentum builds in the conservative circles uh, in this state, things happen that are unexpected. And my sense is that's a possibility with Marjorie Taylor Greene and the people who are surrounding her. Right. What's interesting, the other part of this story, uh, Bill, is, and I'll try to be quick, is is that uh, Kevin McCarthy did call Marjorie Taylor Greene. They had a nice conversation. And after yeah. that conversation, yeah. she put out another tweet saying, we talked, I liked his plans. Uh, which and 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 uh, in her plans, what she wants, she wants uh, you know anyone who cooperates with a democratic effort like the infrastructure bill, thirteen House Republicans, she wants them out of the caucus or punished or stripped of committees. All right, uh, let's move on, Jim. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but of course, uh, the final day of voting is tomorrow in the Atlanta mayor's runoff. Uh, they've been there's been early voting by now, um, and it comes down to two issues. Here, uh, which of the two candidates seems to have the better plan for public safety? And I think also there are people who are looking at which of, and maybe fewer people, but for us as analysts, I think it's important, which of the two is more likely to have impact in terms of the Stop Buckhead City movement? Jim? Right, and I think the matter the matter there is 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 trust. There, uh, who who will be perceived as the, the, the best defender of the city of Atlanta? I think it's very interesting in the way that uh, that uh, the city's African American establishment and and much of the much of the sectors in in, in Midtown and such have really lined up be- behind uh, Andre Dickens, and and I think that's that's very telling. Yeah, Audrey, I do think that's interesting. In the final days and the closing days of the race, days of the race, it is Andre Dickens, not Felicia Moore, despite her many years of service uh, uh, in the city council. It is Andre Dickens who's really picked up momentum, at least in terms of endorsements. Well, and you know what? Part of it is he's been doing a lot of work. He has been out there and he has been, um, you know, as they say in politics, pressing the flesh, meeting with people. Um, and, you know, you know, part of it, too, is is you've got younger, more progressive uh, voters in Atlanta out there. And, um, you know, he may have more of an appeal. After I listened to the debate between um, both of, of those candidates in particular, you know, there there is a, um, a bit of, uh, you know, sort of uh, not older, but more establishment, um, you know, more traditional um, sort of um, of. Uh, personality that goes along with more and 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 uh, Dickens captures more of this more current uh, progressive uh, what's the word I'm looking for it, it just captures that sort of wave so that is probably one of the reasons um, that that's going on uh, at this moment where he's got that bit of momentum right Raisa on our Webex where we see each other I saw you nodding vigorously as Audrey was saying those things way in uh, mm. Yes, I was going to say he's less establishment. Um, I think that having covered City Hall before and just kind of looking at the changes that he's kind of brought to the city. I mean, he was instrumental in bringing a Department of Transportation to the city, something we desperately needed but had never had. And so I'm more curious to see what he could bring to the table. And I imagine that other people um, in my peer group, well, I'm more curious to see what he can bring to the peer group than say Felicia Moore, who who does have the experience 
um, but I think has not connected with that younger base. Raisa Habersham gets the last word in today's Political Rewind. Raisa, thank you so much for being here. Heather, great to have you back. Audrey Haynes, a veteran of this show for many years. You know we always love having you with us. And Jim Galloway, thank you for being part of Political Rewind today. Um, We have a couple minutes left. And I told our team that I wanted to take a moment of personal privilege as we close the show today. I think those of you who listen to the show regularly know that theater is a very important part of my life. My wife is a playwright. Our daughter works in theater in New York. Um, And uh, the three of us were very, very saddened, like so many of you out there, when we learned the news that Stephen Sondheim uh, died on Friday at 91 unexpectedly. If you're not a great fan of Broadway, of musicals, you may not know that this was truly the giant, the most important force in theater in the second half of the 20th century. And no artist has ever brought more beauty, more deeper emotion, and a more rigorous honesty to his work and to my life than Stephen Sondheim. His shows, everything from company to a little night music, to uh, Into the Woods, to Sweeney Todd, to so many others, are extraordinary works. Not just his composition, but his lyrics as well. He was meticulous in the way that he wrote his lyrics. There's a funny story. You know, he wrote the lyrics to West Side Story. And uh, he will tell, would tell you up until this day that he could never like the lyrics that he wrote to that show. And um, one of the reasons is in the famous song, There's a Place for Us, he said the way that he wrote that lyric, the emphasis in that line, there's a place for us, is on the word A, the least important word in the entire sentence. That was Sondheim. There are people who say his music wasn't hummable, but it was brilliant and beautiful and complex and compassionate. And so to close the show today, I want to play a song from an early show of his. It was a failure. It's a song that I sang to my children, Bill and Emma, when they were little every night. It means a lot to me personally, and I want to share it with you today as we leave and say thank you for such a wonderful, wonderful body of work, Stephen Sondheim. It's a song called Anyone Can Whistle from a 1964 Broadway show sung here by Lee Remick. See you all tomorrow. Take care. Stay healthy. It's all.